All right, students, let's get started. Lecture 12, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Book 16 and 17, slides 202 to 231 today. All right, let's remember that last time we spoke, uh, last time we I lectured, last time we were at the story, uh, Telemachus was summoned home by Athena from Sparta. He went straight from Sparta through Pylos without stopping at Nestor's home and uh, got onto a ship and came home to Ithaca. On the way to his ship, he ran into a murderous prophet, the ancestor, or descendant rather, of Amphiaraeus, who was a famous prophet who died uh, at the War at Thebes. Recall that the War at Thebes was one of the two mythological wars from Greek mythology. There was the War at Thebes first, and then the War at Troy second. And recall that we met several sons of famous fighters at Thebes in the Iliad. Recall that Diomedes was the son of Tydeus. Tydeus was one of the seven against Thebes, uh, Ateocles and Polynices, two of the sons, the two sons of Oedipus, who were born by incest, uh, fought against each other for Thebes. They were supposed to uh, rule it on alternating years, but uh, it was Ateocles who decided that he did not want to share power with Polynices, so Polynices uh, raised a force to come back and destroy his brother, and uh, sadly they killed each other in mortal combat at the, uh, in, to end the war. And so, a uh, very sad story. Uh, we will read uh, stories surrounding that. We will read the Antigone as well as the Oedipus Tyrannus together, and you will see that uh, not only the boys, but also Antigone and Ismene have uh, difficulties in their lives as well. Perhaps Ismene has the worst life, seeing as she's the one that survives them all. In any case, in any case, um, the war at Thebes was a, uh, a major event, and uh, Theoclymenus is related to a prophet who died there. Now, on the way home, Telemachus was supposed to be ambushed by Antinous and the suitors, but Athena kept them from seeing him, and he made it home. He made it home then to his hut, where he addressed a man as father. His actual father, who is there disguised as a beggar? No, he doesn't know that he's his father. He addresses Eumaeus three times as a father. And recall also that beautiful simile that we read together of Eumaeus, who greets, uh, greets this boy as if he were his father, returning from ten years of long war. We all know that that simile should apply to Odysseus, but it unfortunately doesn't because he didn't get to raise his son. So is he more or less of a father to Telemachus, who he uh, bear, helped to bore or bear, um, or is it Eumaeus who actually helped to raise him? What is a father? That sort of question arises here. In any case, Eumaeus then is sent by Telemachus to Penelope to let him know uh, or to let her know that her son has safely come home, which she probably wants to uh, know. Eurycleia will find out, too. She's also sort of like a surrogate mother as a nurse. She, too, is, uh, uh, she plays the role of mother, even though she did not obviously bear Telemachus. She would have been too old because she was also the nurse of Odysseus. She, uh, she helped to raise him, and um, I don't know if any of you ever had a nurse, but uh, the people that help raise you when you are young often have a very deep imprint on your life that never goes away. That never goes away. You see them sort of as a maternal or paternal figure, and it doesn't usually change. Or it takes a lot of therapy to make it change. In any case, Eumaeus is now gone. Telemachus is now in the room, alone, with his father, who he does not know is his father. What's going to happen? Well, first and foremost, Athena appears outside. And who notices her presence first? It's the dogs. They can sense it. They start to wince. They're like, oh, gosh, there's a dog. Or, sorry, a god. And uh, Odysseus notices, too, and he actually walks outside. He says, uh, not, what do you want, Athena, but, uh, uh, what's up? <laughs> How can I help you? And she says, um, it's time for you to reveal yourself to the first person here. The first person you're revealing yourself to is your actual 
son. And so this is going to be a moment of reunion, the first moment of reunion that Odysseus gets. And think about this. When he got home, he probably, like Agamemnon, who just rushed to his home, expects a reunion, to be seen by those who love him, to be greeted with love. He's been denied that so far. Uh, it's possible that nobody remembers him, or that people have changed allegiances during this time, including his son, his father, his servants, his nurse, and uh, even his wife. And so he just doesn't know. But he's told by Athena that he can trust his son. And so she commands Odysseus to reveal himself, and she bops him on the head with a wand, and he turns back into his normal self, except a little bit better, curlier hair, taller, and thicker. Oh. And then when he comes back into the hut, he looks totally different from how he did before. Now all of a sudden, whoa, he's looking pretty studly, sort of like when Nausicaa saw him after his bath, which means bathe as much as possible. Um, but not too much because your skin will dry out, so at least once a day, I'd say. But maybe not too much more than that. In any case, he walks back in, and Telemachus says, you look just like a god. And this is a very sort of Darth Vader moment. I don't know if you've seen the second Star Wars, but there's this dynamic moment where the antagonist who supposedly killed the father of the protagonist, I'm going to use these general terms so I don't spoil it if you haven't seen it, reveals that actually he hadn't killed the protagonist's father. He is the protagonist's father. And so Telemachus says, you, you must be a god. And Odysseus says, I am no god but your father. And I am the only Odysseus who will come back here. And he says, but, but, and he makes a pretty good point here. He says, but people don't just transform from old man back into young man. And Odysseus says, foolish young Telemachus, the gods can do whatever they want to my appearance. And this is what's happened. He says, no, I am not a god, but I am your father. And Telemachus has finally gotten what he's been waiting his entire life to get, a chance to see his father. And to have his father claim him as his own. Recall in the first book he said, people say that I'm Odysseus' son, but how am I supposed to know? Because you really never can quite tell if the person who claims to be your father is your father uh, from a technical perspective. In any case, uh, he doesn't believe it at first. But then Odysseus insists, and then they embrace and cry, and Telemachus asks questions of his dad. And I think that's actually a very touching picture. I mean, it's like uh, uh, Telemachus is sprawled out and just uh, giving himself entirely to the man who is his father. And you can see Athena in the background there being like, yes, good, good. Uh, the suitors will pay deeply for this. Yes, all right, good. There's a slightly bigger version of that. Athena, whenever you're hugging somebody, remember Athena's watching. All right. <laughs> Just like Santa, it's the same thing. All right, so what do these two do together? Well, what do they like to do? Uh, well, and what do they have to do? They're both very good at plotting. That's why they're uh, loved by Athena. Remember that Athena explicitly said, to Odysseus, the reason I like you is you always keep your wits no matter what situation you're in. Well, Telemachus seems to have this quality too. Well, they have a pest problem. What is that pest? It's the suitors. Neither of them want the suitors in that house. Odysseus doesn't want the suitors in the house because they might uh, marry his wife and then kick him out of his home. Telemachus doesn't want them there for pretty much similar reasons and because he has a personal distaste for them and because they've actually attempted to kill him at this point. So he's got beef with them. Odysseus First, uh, tries to get the lay of the land. Recall that uh, a key to his success is that he knows the right questions to ask. Remember in Book 10 of the Iliad, when they caught Doan, what did he do? Say a bunch of things to Doan or ask a bunch of questions? He has tons of questions. Where's Hector? What's Hector planning to do? Where are the different contingents of troops? Uh, what are their uh, differing defenses? And that's how he found out that there were Thracians. They were new to the war. They had no defensive perimeter. And uh, 
and, uh, and that they had very nice uh, horses that could be stolen. And uh, that was what uh, was told to him by Dolan, and they cut Dolan's head off. In any case, what he finds out is this. There are 108 suitors, and they have 12 vassals with them. So essentially 120 men versus two at this point. And uh, Telemachus says, I, I don't think we can actually uh, handle all these suitors. I don't know what you plan to do. And Odysseus says, you need not to worry about that. We have Athena and Zeus on our side. That good enough for you? And Telemachus says, okay, I'll be quiet right now. Um, because, yeah, if Zeus is on your side, obviously you're going to win. Zeus was powerful enough to make the Trojans for a time defeat the Achaeans, who had ten times more troops than they did, and higher battle prowess, and better warriors, and a more organized uh, uh, offensive front. In any case, if Zeus wants you to win, you're going to win. So, this is them talking. I think that's sort of interesting. Obviously, Telemachus looks pretty young there. All right, so what's the plan? Well, if there are 108 suitors and there are only two Odysseuses and Telemachuses, are they going to win by outright force, or are they going to have to use subterfuge, cleverness, cunning? Obviously, this is going to be more like a, uh, uh, not the siege of Troy, but more like a Trojan horse sort of uh, situation. They're going to have to use cunning and deception to win uh, the same sorts of trek stratagems that were used against Polyphemus, who was a giant, far too strong to fight outright, and the same sort of stratagem that was used after Aias the Greater and Achilles died in the Iliad, sneaking into this place uh, so that the suitors do not even realize that their enemy is among them. And so that's a very effective strategy for uh, doing maximal damage without somebody expecting it coming. So Odysseus will infiltrate the house looking like an old beggar. He's going to be turned back into an old beggar by uh, Athena before he gets on the road to go to his house. Telemachus must allow the suitors to insult and abuse him, which is part of the plan. And you might want to think about how difficult that will be for him. Telemachus now has become far more like a man, and you're going to see that he's much less willing to put up with the antics of the suitors. He's going to uh, defy them to their faces. He's not going to sit with them anymore, and he's going to uh, actually say uh, to their faces that he wants them to die, uh, and that he wishes that they would die. Which are pretty strong, we, we would call those at the very least fighting words. Well, now he knows that his father, who he respects and admires greatly, is back. He's going to have to watch them abuse his father, these lesser men in his perspective, uh, who have never done anything, who are not admirable, who are uh, 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 derogatory in their very natures, <laughs> you might say. Uh, he's going to have to watch them uh, insult his father, who owns the home that they're eating in and the food that they're eating, and also even throw things at them, just like I threw that poor uh, Kleenex box over there earlier. We're going to see things get thrown. We're going to see ox hooves get thrown, one of them, and uh, also footstools. So uh, they'll hurl insults as well as physical objects. In any case, more to this plan. Odysseus in the great hall where the men gather, it's sort of like the living room of a large manor at this time, uh, there are several weapons along the wall. Now, part of this plan is to try and isolate where the suitors are and to make it so that they have no weapons, so that when Odysseus and Telemachus have a weapon, they'll be fighting against an unarmed opponent. So what Telemachus has to do is he has to go in front of the suitors and tell a lie. And this is the first time that he's going to have to publicly lie in front of people. It's a big test for him, something that we obviously know Odysseus is incredibly good at. Remember, even in front of Polyphemus, he was like, oh yeah, no, we uh, lost our ship. We don't have any ships left. And when he met Eumaeus, he was like, oh man, I'm a guy from Crete. And yada, 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 as we would say. Well, Telemachus is going to have to say, well, all this smoke from all this food and all this partying is starting to tarnish the blades. And so I need to take the blades off the wall 
and we need to clean them. And so we're going to go do that. And so Telemachus is going to tell this lie to the suitors so that they don't suspect that somebody's about to come in with a weapon and kill them while they're unarmed. And they're going to, because they're drunk and uh, careless and arrogant, just accept what he says, because they don't keep their wits about them in the same way that Telemachus and Odysseus does. And he says even, and I think that this is an excellent argument, this is sometimes used as an argument against uh, owning weapons, that you never know how you're going to act when you drink some wine. You have a weapon there, you two get into a fight, maybe you want to get that weapon and stab your friend. And uh, that's, uh, that is literally what Telemachus will say to them, and they'll say, yeah, that's pretty good reasoning. In any case, Athena mazes their wits and will make them stupidly agree. And here's sort of an interesting point. Odysseus also says that what he's going to be doing during this time is judging the loyalty of the people in that uh, house. Obviously, the suitors, they're all guilty, even the nice ones. There is a nice one that we'll meet. His name is Amphinomus. There is a, there's a side story that suggests that he actually had an affair with Penelope, but not in the Odyssey itself. Um, and there's also a side story that Eurymachus had, a, had an affair with uh, Penelope because he gives the best gifts. Um, and he's actually played by a very smarmy, arrogant-looking actor in the movie The Odyssey, put on by the NBC named Eric Roberts, and he's very good. Yeah, he he does a he does a good job. If no one else does a good job in that uh, in that movie, he does. In any case, Odysseus is going to go around and see who's loyal, who's disloyal. He's like an invisible force. It's almost like he is himself a god of judgment here, going around to check the actions of people who think that they are uh, unchecked or unwatched. Hmm. Interesting. So, the suitors, they find out that Odysseus, or excuse me, not Odysseus, that would be a shock. They find out that Telemachus has made it back. And this is pretty frustrating to them because they had set an ambush and they thought he was going to die. And if he was going to die, then they would have a chance to marry Penelope. And they'd be very close to getting what they wanted. Now that he's back, they're not as close as they wanted to be. Very annoying to them. In any case, Eurymachus summons back the ambush. And uh, Amphinomus, the one I just mentioned as being nice and potentially having an affair with Penelope, he says, they're already back. Well, Antinous had led the ambush, but like Agamemnon, he does not exercise extreme responsibility. He blames the gods for his failure. And so he says, well, if we failed to kill him on the seas, let's just plan to kill him now, because we want to kill him anyway. So, uh, but you can see that the, the tides are starting to turn. The winds are shifting. Mary Poppins about to leave with her umbrella. Uh, they missed their opportunity. The people no longer favor us as they did, which means they might turn on the suitors and hold them accountable for their lack of zinnia. And he says, we, or we need to give some better gifts and quickly marry Penelope. He can realize that they're losing their grip on the situation. Uh, not only are there uh, constant omens and portents like eagles st strangling go geese uh, to show us that these suitors are heading for doom, not only is there a man in disguise who is Odysseus who is there plotting their death, but you can even see that they're starting to feel, starting to think that things are not going right, that they are, their comeuppance is coming soon. In any case, uh, even amongst their ranks there's some dissension. Amphinomus says, I, I can't rightfully kill Telemachus. We've been receiving hospitality from him. And the only way I'll do that is if we receive a sign from the gods, and they do not receive that sign from the gods that it is appropriate to kill uh, Telemachus, in any case. Now, during this time, these suitors have been talking, they're loud. They don't 
seem to acknowledge the presence of the, uh, the serving people around them, and the fact that these serving people are uh, loyal to uh, Penelope. So Medon, the herald, rolls up the stairs and goes to tell Penelope that these men are actively plotting and have actively plotted to kill her son, which you can imagine makes her more or less likely to marry these gentlemen. I say with great uh, uh, disdain, because they are not truly gentlemen. Well, she then, and this is misspelled, it should say chastises, she then uh, comes down the stairs, and she actually ends up chastising these men, uh, showing her disdain for them. She, she, and she gives us some background that makes us know just how uh, deplorable their behavior actually is. So Antinous, she says, I can't believe you're trying to kill my son. You owe everything to his father, Odysseus. Odysseus took your father, Eupathes, in when he had murdered somebody and uh, needed protection uh, from Odysseus. And Odysseus brought him in and gave him land. So everything you have is actually due to Odysseus. So you are the most ungrateful person possible. You are a total ingrate. And then Eurymachus, in his smarmy way, says, well, the suitors, we would never, we would never kill Telemachus. And as long as I'm alive, Eurymachus, no suitor will lay a hand on Telemachus. And that is certainly true. As long as the suitors are alive, they will not lay a hand on uh, Telemachus, but they won't be alive for that much longer, so don't worry about that. He says, though, uh, in a deep foreshadowing of his own fate, not Telemachus's, though that's not his intention, uh, but the gods might try and hurt Telemachus. What can we do if the gods decide to harm him? So he spoke, encouraging her, 16, 448 to 449, but himself was planning the murder. So he's lying through his teeth. So again, you're seeing lots of lying happening here. Telemachus to the suitors, Odysseus to Eumaeus, and now the suitors back to Penelope. It's a web of lies, as you might say. In any case, let's see through. Telemachus then asks if the suitors are back from the ambush that they plan for him when Eumaeus comes back down to... Um, so Eumaeus now returns back down to the hut where Telemachus and Odysseus have been plotting the deaths of the suitors. And he asks whether they've now shown back up uh, Antinous and his crew from the attempt of ambushing uh, Telemachus. Eumaeus says that he saw oh, another error here, the ambush party from the hill of Hermes heading back into the town. And Telemachus smiles knowingly, catching Odysseus's eye, thinking, ah, yes, things are going well. Things are going according to plan. Good. Telemachus then decides that it's time for him to go back to his home and see Penelope. She knows that he's back. She will be expecting him. She is, in some ways, still the ruler of Ithaca. In some ways, perhaps Telemachus is now. He then commands Eumaeus to bring the beggar to the city to beg, even though earlier it had been the idea that maybe the beggar would be sent on somewhere else on a ship with some uh, goods or kept in Eumaeus' home because of the presence of the suitors. Obviously, if the suitors are in Telemachus' house and he brings a friend who's a beggar, they are going to mistreat him. They're going to say unkind things to him and try and do unkind things to him as well. Odysseus says, this sounds like a good plan. Again, he is back in the guise of an old man and beggar as he was when he first met Eumaeus. Good, good, good. All right. Telemachus heads out and reaches his home and lays down his spear. And that, I think that's such an interesting note. He lays down his spear. Recall that when he had first met uh, Mentes, who had, came, who had come in book one, to, who was Athena, who came in book one to see him in his house, that he took her spear first. The idea being 
that he doesn't mean any harm. Uh, and also recall that when Hector walked into the house of Paris in Book 6 of the Iliad, he kept his spear in his hand. That uh, uh, he was there for business, not for pleasure. He wasn't hanging out. And well, who's the first person who sees Telemachus when he gets home? Eurycleia, she bursts into tears. Because just like Eumaeus being similar to his father, Eurycleia is very similar to his mother. They both love this young man. And he seems to be a good-hearted man. Uh, like Odysseus, not only a strong mind, a deceptive, powerful mind, but a, a good heart, loyal to those who are loyal to him. In any case, like Eumaeus' dogs, the maids also fawn on him. Like his father, you can see, he is well-beloved, and that makes a difference. People like this guy. They don't like the suitors. They would like him to rule. They would not like the suitors to rule. Penelope then descends and also bursts into tears. Uh, and she asks for a report from Telemachus. And Telemachus takes command and actually says, um, uh, well, I I'm going to give the orders here, and I need you to prepare a hecatomb to pray to Zeus for an end to the suitor's occupation. And this is, uh, remember, a hecatomb is a very powerful, very expensive ritual, a hundred uh, oxen, not a small thing to do. And so there must be some expectation when Telemachus orders her to sacrifice this many animals that there will be something to feast about soon. Um, he knows that that's true. She doesn't. But recall that this is very similar to the scene in, again, Book 6 of the Iliad when Hector commanded his mother to sacrifice 12 very fine robes to Athena. Uh, unlike that situation, however, Zeus will heed the prayers of Penelope and um, Telemachus here. All right, good. Okay, and so just a small note here, just to let you know that, again, people's perceptions are changing. Just as their views, just as their opinions are turning negative against the suitors, so are they starting to have a glowing perception of Telemachus. Wow, he came back from Sparta and Pilots. Look at him. He's standing up straighter. He looks taller. He looks strong. He's looking more and more like a man, more and more like a leader, the leader of them, their leader. And so people say things. He's, uh, he's walking through the city, and Athena drifts a grace upon him, and all the people now watch him, and the suitors mutter to themselves. I often make the connection, because you happen to be high school students, that it's like in one of those movies about like a young high school girl or guy who's been sort of nerdy and didn't know how to dress or carry himself or herself, and then has like a major makeover, and then the next day is walking through the cafeteria in like all of a sudden slow motion, smiling, winking and stuff, and everyone's like, the girls are like, woo, and the guys are like, what? And uh, it's like things are changing right in front of them. And the suitors literally, they mutter themselves. They're like, man, he's not even that much. I don't even know about that guy. Whatever. And Telemachus ignores them. He goes right past them. You're all the suitors right now. You're all like, pss, pss, make some sounds at me. Pss, hiss, whatever, mutter, mutter. Whatever. I'm going to go hang out with the old men over here. And he sits down, not with them, but with three other people. I mean, that's a real mark of division right there. Who you sit with and refuse to sit with in order to eat. There are. Uh, uh, that is one of the oldest, is way, oldest ways to punk people. In fact, uh, if you ever read any of uh, the letters of the New Testament, that was like one of the big things. Can uh, Jewish people, who have different dietary restrictions from early Christians, can they sit at the same table with each other? The Apostle Paul said yes. A different apo uh, Apostle, I think it was James, said no. And then who do you listen to? I guess you have to listen to yourself. In any case, Telemachus ignores them and sits with Mentor, Halitherses, remember Halitherses, Hal excuse me, 
Halitherses was a, sort of a prophet. He had mentioned seeing a prophecy in Book Two when Telemachus gave his uh, unsuccessful uh, um, uh, his unsuccessful assembly and Antipas as well. <coughs> now, Pariah's a crewmate of Telemachus approaches and asks Telemachus to send his women to collect the gifts from Menelaus. Now, this is sort of an interesting moment. Shows some foresight by Telemachus. He says, well, I don't actually want you to bring all the gifts from Menelaus into my home right now because I might die pretty soon. These suitors want to kill me. So I want you to keep them actually at this house with Theoclymenus. And if I die, I want you to dole out these presents, these gifts, to the men who accompany me on the uh, crew. So he's generous, too. And he has foresight. He knows he might die in the next couple of days. He is resolved to fight against the suitors. And he is also sort of like giving a will. He's like, well, if I die, I want the right people to give these possessions, not the people who killed me who I hate. And so uh, let's uh, keep them at this home for now, and you can bring them to the house after I've uh, done what I need to do with these pests. All right, Telemachus then returns to the palace, bathes, and reports to Penelope with Theoclymenus. At dinner, Penelope says she will just retire to her quarters to cry if Telemachus has no news of Odysseus. Uh, Telemachus then describes meaning Nestor. You don't really need to write this. Uh, Menelaus and Helen, that must have been a pretty good story. Penelope's like, oh yeah, Helen's my cousin. She still looks good? Yes, she does. Oh yeah, kind of a weird household. You took drugs there, huh? So you might leave that point out. In any case, he claims that Menelaus had told him that the old man of the sea told him that Odysseus was trapped on Odigia with uh, Calypso. Ooh, uh, Calypso, that's a lady name. Trapped a lady on a desert island. Uh, probably Penelope doesn't like to hear that. But here's where something Interesting happens again, again, one of these omens, one of these prophecies. Theoclemenus, who has not yet been sent back to his home, or to the home where the presence of uh, Menelaus are being kept by Telemachus before he brings them to his house after killing the suitors, uh, Theoclemenus prophesies that Odysseus is already here, already on this island. And well, Penelope, you'll see that this is a common theme. She says, I wish what you said was true, and I'd give you all sorts of gifts if what you said was true, but many prophets have come to Ithaca over the last 20 years said the same thing that you did, and they have always been wrong, and therefore you are always wrong. Um, which is not really using the scientific method on her part, but that didn't exist until the 17th century anyway, uh, well, which is 25 centuries after this. In any case, meanwhile, the suitors come in to dinner from sport and discus. They've just been hanging out, playing around, because they don't do anything useful. And uh, against Eumaeus' warning, Odysseus insists on going into town to the palace of Odysseus. So the suitors are now back to the house. Odysseus wants to go to the house, Conflict will soon ensue. But before he gets there, as I told you, hijinks, he runs into a goat herd. Now, we've met a very humble man, a swine herd. Ooh, look at that guy. Sorry. Not trying to be judgmental. That's from like a LARPing of uh, the Odyssey, by the way. Apparently, people live action roleplay the Odyssey. Well, uh, we met a swine herd who's very humble named Eumaeus, and he helped us. We're going to meet a goat herd here. Uh, a couple connotations of goats. Uh, goats are stubborn. That's really what you need to know. They're known to be foul-tempered, ill-tempered. Uh, and even the astrological sign Capricorn is a goat. In any case, yes, good, 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 good. So, on the way to his house, they go past an altar called the Altar of the Nymphs. And Melanthios, when he sees Eumaeus leading a beggar towards the house of the, uh, he would call it the house of the suitors, but it's the house of Odysseus, he heaves insults at Eumaeus and Odysseus. And in fact, he is so brazen and has so little concept of Xenia that he even physically assaults Odysseus, who is his king. 
an employer and would be well within his rights to cut the head off or bang the head into the ground of Melanthius. This is the first of many insults to the character, to the reputation, to the, to the person of Odysseus. Melanthius kicks him in the hip. Totally unacceptable uh, behavior. And uh, you should keep Melanthius's name in uh, mind because we will meet his sister, who is a serving maid there, who is the girlfriend of Eurymachus. By the way, her name is Melantho. And we will even meet their father. I don't think he's as proud of those two as he is of his other children. He does have other children. So when he learns about the fate of these two, perhaps he'll understand. In any case, uh, Melanthius is a typical sort of uh, sidekick of a bully. He is himself without power, but he acts like he has power. And so when, after he kicks Odysseus in front of Eumaeus, he retreats back into the house and goes to sit next to his favorite bully, Eurymachus, who he thinks will defend him. But uh, the defense of Eurymachus will not end up being quite very much. In any case, we need to start getting towards the end of the lecture here. Odysseus and Eumaeus arrive at Odysseus's house. They don't yet go in. That's where we're going to end today just outside the house. Eumaeus warns Odysseus to be careful and watch out for flying objects, just like I warn all of you to watch out for flying Kleenex boxes over the next few days to illustrate my points. And maybe I'll throw with my, righty, my right hand so that I'm more accurate. Maybe I'll throw with my left so that I'm not. We'll see. In any case, as they are speaking, a dog, Argos, raises, he notices them and raises his head. He's an old dog. He's a scrawny dog. Let me tell you a few things. Oh, yeah, that's really good. This is a very sad picture. This is obviously Odysseus. And this is his dog. And you can tell from his eye and his tongue hanging out, this is him dead. He's not dead yet, but he will be in a couple slides. All right. So uh, prepare to be a little bit sad, especially if you are a lover of uh, cute uh, or old things or of sweet things or of dependent things. Argos is the dog of Odysseus. Odysseus actually knew Argos. So this dog is old. He's like 21 years old. He was a hunting dog. He was a fine dog. He was trained by Odysseus. When Odysseus left uh, Ithaca, he had so much. Just think about it. He had a young wife. Beautiful. He had a newborn son. And he had this fine dog. It's almost like this dog is itself a representation of everything that Odysseus has lost and how bad everything has gotten in his absence. Because look at what he is sleeping on. A pile of ox dung. Dung is poop. Ox poop is smelly. You use it for fertilizer. That's why I said, so he's literally sleeping on feces, dung, poo, which is not a very respectful uh, thing to leave your dog on. Well, he's also covered in dog ticks. Nobody, is anybody taking care of this dog? Nobody's taking care of this dog. And, well, if you want to look symbolically at it, it's almost like every... It's like he's let himself go to seed. And it's almost like there are blood-sucking things sucking the life out of him. Well, this dog seems to be a symbol for what? Ithaca, which has become so much worse in the absence of Odysseus. And now has blood-suckers sucking the life out of it. Who would be the blood-suckers in this symbol, in this idea? It would be the suitors. Of course they would be. They add nothing and they take everything. And so, though... Argus does not have the strength to move. He looks up, and he seems to recognize Odysseus. You say, how does he recognize Odysseus? He can't talk. Is he a talking dog like Balos and Xanthos were talking horses? I say, no, no, no. What he does is he looks up, and he wags his tail a little bit. He's like, hey, master's home. And then he dies. And it is so sad. Notice how it might even bring a tear right behind your eyes. This dog 
survived mistreatment for 20 years. Ticks all over his body, sleeping on dung. His life is terrible. His life is total, literally total bull dung. Uh, I'm not going to finish that, but it's terrible how he's treated and what he's living on. And what does he do? He waits until he sees his master again. He's a good boy. He's a good boy. He waits until he sees him again. Doesn't give away anything except for wagging his tail. He be wagging his tail for any reason. Why is he wagging his tail when he sees Odysseus, even though he's disguised? He's going to see through the disguise. He, he is like the first person, besides Telemachus, to, and he's not even the person, <laughs> to welcome Odysseus home appropriately, unlike Melanthios, my goodness. And so, uh, uh, just to make it even sadder, Argos is described as once having been a very fine dog. Uh, strong, beautiful, good at hunting, uh, clever, but Eumaeus says he belongs to a dead man, not true. Serving men and women no longer care for him, and uh, Argos now dies, we'll say happy, bless you, uh, because he does wag his tail, and then uh, his watch has come to its End. And so we end on sort of a tragic, sad note, but uh, perhaps a happy note, because um, uh, what would be better for an old dog than to get to see his master one last time?